BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 143. Thank you, thank you for coming out. Uh, this is... Uh, this is Trampoline Hall uh, here at the Garrison in Toronto, uh, uh, which is, of, of course, in Canada, um, uh, a country. I'm, I'm starting off with the easy, the information, the stuff that you already know, and then easing into uh, the more informative. This is like the on-ramp, the information on-ramp, um, to, to use a, a metaphor from the 90s that I'm changing around. Um, uh, uh, um, so the basic thing, this is Trampoline Hall. This is a live recording of today's guest, Misha Globerman. And he's preparing the audience for Trampoline Hall, a barroom lecture series, which he's hosted in Toronto for many years. I won't play the whole thing, but I wanted to start this episode with Misha's introduction, which, by the way, he does at every trampoline hall. Here's some of it. When the show happens, you won't be, like, startled or surprised. I don't want you to be caught off guard or be like, whoa, I didn't see that coming. I want you to be more like, whoa, I saw that coming. Um, and I want you to feel, so when the show happens, you'll feel this feeling of, like, warm familiarity. You'll be like, oh, what does this remind me of? And you'll be like, oh, it reminds me of what that man was just saying five minutes ago. And that, that'll you'll feel good and you'll feel comfortable. And the show will kind of unfold pretty much the way I describe it. And so you will come uh, to trust me, which will be to my advantage in the long term. Um, so that basically, so that's if you have not been to the show before. If you have been to the show before, I can I, I, I deduce based on your behavior that you are the sort of person who, for entertainment, would like to go to a bar and listen to a man say the exact same thing he said last month. Yes. And once again. My promise to you is to make it even more... This pre-show talk slash pep talk has become famous around Toronto as a way to prepare a crowd for a live event. If you were to go see another live show, you might hear someone do a version of this, and they would cite Misha as the inspiration for their particular variation. And that's because it works really, really well. And it works really well because it incorporates many of the principles that Misha teaches, principles that you will hear about in this interview. Whoa, people are like, blew my mind already, and the show hasn't even started yet. Um, anyway, okay, so the basic thing to know about the show is this. It is a show made up of lectures, which means uh, at the beginning of the show, there'll be someone on the stage, at the beginning of the show, they will know something. At the end of the show, you will know the thing that they knew, and so uh, you and they will have more in common. And our, our goal is to uh, do this until everybody knows all the same things as everybody else, uh, which will erase difference and, we believe, end war. That is our, that is our yeah. <laughs> it's, always, it's always a good way to get applause is to come out opposed to war. Um, 
we think we're about 70% of the way there thus far. So that's the progress that we're making. Oh, but the thing to know, so the lectures, they'll, they'll say these things, but here's the thing I would tell you, is that the lectures are forbidden uh, from speaking on subjects on which they are professionally expert. That is the one rule, is what sets us apart in the highly competitive Toronto uh, barroom lecture industry, is, is, that, is that one thing. Um, and sometimes people say to me, Misha, Misha, is there some special thing I have to do during the lecture to get the knowledge from them? Should I like be making my knowledge grasping gesture? And the answer is no, there's no such thing as that. So don't worry about it. The knowledge will just come to you. But I will tell you this, if you're the kind of person who likes a little extra task or an extra challenge uh, uh, in, in, in life or just when you go out, um, I'll tell you this, which is that if, at the end of each lecture, there'll be a question and answer period or Q&A as we call it in the lecture business or lec biz. And, and if you know that, if you know there's going to be a Q&A, then you can, you can plan accordingly. And, 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 and we'd love to have your questions. In the, in the, in the Q&A, as in virtually all things in life, uh, it is quantity that matters, with quality a very distant second. So what we really want from you is, is lots of people laugh in the face of quality. <laughs> Stupid quality, they say. Um, <laughs> I got lost. Um, oh yeah, so we want, we want lots of questions, we want them loud. That's sort of the quantity part. And for quality, you've probably heard it said that there's no such thing as a bad question. Um, whoever said that was either a fool or a charlatan. I'm going with charlatan, because of course there's such a thing as a bad question. Of course there is. And that might seem like sad news. So you're, wait, are you booing the fact that there's a bad question? Someone hiss the bad... All right, yes, hiss the bad question, right. But Because it's sad, it is sad. It's sad that there's such a thing as a bad question, but it also implies the happy uh, part of that news, which is that it also implies there's such a thing as a good question. So as people say to me, people say, Misha, Misha, how do I know if my question is a good question? Good question, I reply, immediately putting them in a positive feedback spiral. Um, good question. A question is a good question. By definition, it must be a question. Um, it should be in the interrogative mood or interrogative mode, uh, depending on who you roll with. It should have like the squiggly line at the end. It should start with one of the question words. Do not think that you can just take a statement and raise the pitch at the end. Um, that will not trick us. Um, we've been doing this for a very long time. Or sometimes people will be like, um, could it not be said that? And then just say a statement and then just just like make the question mark sign in the air. Um, that will not fool us at all. We are much, much smarter than that. Also, also, um, if there are grammarians in the audience, and our research shows it's about 70% grammarians because we advertise extensively in their journals. If there are grammarians in their audience, in our audience, they will agree with me when I tell you there is no such grammatical construct as a two-part question. Um, if you think you have a two-part question, you actually just have two questions. Um, Ask the better of the two and save the crappy one for a less discriminating lecture series. Uh, so that's some ways to know if your question is good by looking at the question. But then you can also try looking not at the question, but look at yourself. Um, look into your own uh, heart in an honest spirit of non-judgment, as I'm sure you often do. And, and see to yourself, um, what, maybe, what feelings do you have uh, when you feel the question coming on? Maybe you feel curiosity, or as we call it, the question feeling. That's a good sign. That's an excellent. That's an excellent feeling before the question. But maybe even you feel angry. Anger, I would say, maybe okay. If you're a little mad at the lecture, you want to work that out through some productive dialogue, go for it, angry audience member. The feeling to watch out for, I would say, is pride. Um, when you find your question coming on, you find yourself thinking, you know, up until this point in my life, I have not been courted the respect, the respect that I deserve. But I feel like things are really going to turn around for me with this question. This is where I'm going to make my mark in the world. Look out, world. Here comes, insert your name here, and his or her question. Um, that's the sort of thing, that's the sort of thing that you should watch out for. Also, pay attention to your, uh, to your mental image. Just step back and picture yourself. Just picture yourself asking the question. Just look at the scene. 
is everyone else tiny and you are enormous and possibly, possibly made of gold? Um, because if so, that is a sign that you might have a bad question. I want to stress, your bad questions are welcome, your good questions simply more so. Uh, so that's the basic thing to know. There will there'll be, there be a lecture, uh, there will be a, a question and answer period, and you may be thinking, that sounds exhausting. Misha Gloverman teaches negotiation both in the classroom and within organizations, and he also works as a professional facilitator, which means he helps people design and run conferences and meetings. He also lectures, hosts Trampoline Hall, which you just heard. He also interviews people at the end of Trampoline Hall, the speakers. He interviews them and takes questions from the audience and sort of facilitates the whole thing. And he's also the co-author of the book, The Chairs Are Where the People Go a collection of his dictated musings about life itself, recorded and edited by author Sheila Hetty. You can find more information about all of this at MishaGloberman.com, or you can just type his name into your Google machine. It's Misha, G-L-O-U-B-E-R-M-A-N. To put it simply, Misha is an expert on communication, and people pay him to help them communicate better. I met Misha about a year ago when he invited me to Toronto for a live event called the Talking to People About Things conversation series. He interviewed me in front of a live audience about all things you are not so smart and also about my upcoming book, How Minds Change. Since then, we've become friends and we've had a lot of conversations about having conversations and all sorts of other stuff too. And since I'm in Toronto right now, I thought it would make for a great episode if we sat down in his kitchen and recorded one of those conversations. That being said, the audio in this episode has that recorded in a kitchen without soundproofing sort of feel. So please forgive the low hum of the refrigerator in the background. So that's what this episode is. Negotiation and communication expert Misha Globerman talks to David McCraney about how to talk to people about things. And to start out this interview, I'm actually going to skip ahead about an hour into our conversation where he revealed the inciting moment, the life event that led him into this field of work. It's a great story. And here it is. The story goes something like this. This is quite a few years ago. And I moved into this apartment, and I knew when I was moving in, there was going to be this um, restaurant opening in the building. And the restaurant opened, and uh, it's a sort of fancy restaurant, and it turned in the day, but in the night it turned into a bar, bar that played really loud music. And uh, I like to think of myself as the kind of easygoing person who isn't bothered by this, mm -hmm. but that's totally inaccurate. It turns out <laughs> I'm incredibly bothered by it. It really freaks me out and annoys me. And... Uh, I talked to the owner of the bar, the manager of the bar, and he's always sort of really sympathetic, but ultimately there's not that much they can do about it. And like every night it kind of gets worse and worse. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be hard living in this apartment. I don't even know if I can live here. And more and more it's bugging me. And I ask him to turn the music down once in a while. They don't do it. And I keep talking to him, and he's always really sympathetic. And then uh, I talked to him one day, and he's like, yeah, you know, I really, he's really nice. He says, I see how hard this is for you. Uh, 
it's going to be even harder when the patio opens. Mm. And I'm like, oh my God, like what a nightmare, right? There's going to be this patio. So I go, and I'm like, I have to stop this patio. So I go to City Hall, and I, I talk, start talking to my neighbors. And what I discover is that um, it's a really complicated situation, and dealing with City Hall is a nightmare and all this stuff. But what I learn is that uh, like under certain circumstances, neighbors can stop a patio from opening. Um, but you sort of have to get together, you have to do legal research, it's complicated, you have to do petitions. So we do all this stuff, me and my neighbors get all together, and we start organizing, we form a residence association, we start figuring out how we're going to stop this patio. And the bar owners know we're doing this, so they're pretty upset, they're trying to stop us from stopping the patio. And now there's all these um, like public meetings, everybody's yelling at each other, and everyone's in a fight, and now it's like this war, it's like this all-out patio war, and it like completely takes over my life. It's like embarrassing that like I've now become this, this obsessive, like patio stopper and I'm like you know in my apartment keeping noise logs for the noise and I'm like we're circling petitions all the time and we're just like in all out battle mode to like destroy stop these guys from getting their patio it goes on and on and it gets more and more antagonistic and then we get a call from someone at the city councilor's office and the guy from the councilor's office is like um, you neighbors you you know what you win you guys have won you guys uh you guys have like gotten like a gazillion signatures. Like you guys turned up laws we didn't know existed, and we're the city councilor's office. Like you, you win. If you don't want a patio, there won't be a patio. And if you want, you can come to city hall tomorrow and see this bar and not get their patio. And we're like, yeah, we want to do it. That's awesome. That's gonna be amazing. So we all go down down to city hall. We're like so psyched to see these guys not get their patio. And like we're gonna like we're gonna win. And that's like we talk about that thing about winning. We're gonna win this. So we're gonna be the winners in this story and yeah. see these guys knock at the patio. We're so psyched. And we go up and then someone from the counselor's office comes up to us and says, um, hey, the counselor wants to see if we can work out some sort of agreement. And we're like, <laughs> we're like no, like agreements aren't, we're, we're, aren't for winners. Uh, we don't, we don't, we're not here to have an agreement. We're here to just be the victors. Uh, he says, well, why don't you, you know, you told us we won, don't change this. And he's like, well, just come talk to us. And so when we sit down in the counselor's office and it's like the counselor, and a couple of neighbors are the owners of the bar. Well, the counselor goes to the owners of the bar and he asks that magic question. He's like, what do you guys want? And the owners of the bar say this thing they've been saying all along, which we kind of haven't exactly been believing. But they say, we want to open this nice patio that's going to be open for lunch and dinner. It's going to be really classy. And they've been saying that all along, but we're like, they're this noisy bar. They're yeah. not. So the counselor says to the owners of the bar, he says, well, would you guys be okay with a patio that was just open for lunch and dinner, but wasn't open late at night? And the owners of the bar say, we could we could live with that like you know we'd rather be open late at night but what we really really care about is lunch and dinner and the patio is really important to us and if that's what it takes we can get it we'll do it and of course we're still like no don't give them the patio they're this noisy bar they suck so the counselor says hang on he says to us to the neighbors you guys are concerned about the noise and we say yeah that's really it's really awful and we're really upset about it so he goes to the owners of the bar and he says listen, your neighbors are really concerned about the noise. And so to the owners of the bar, he says, what would you guys say if we said that we would grant you your patio license on the condition that you control your late night noise? So if you control your late night noise, you can have the patio. But uh, if we find that there's an ongoing problem with the late night noise, we would revoke the patio license. Do you think you'd be able to control the noise? Bar owners say, yeah, yeah, we can do that. They say, you know, if the patio is really, really important to us. And if what we need to do uh, to control the late, to get the patio is to control the late night noise, we can do that. And so the counselor turns to the neighbors, he says, what do you think? And it was like this huge moment of cognitive dissonance. Like you actually like, you know, you kind of feel the wheels mm -hmm. grinding against each other in your head and you, and it was really confusing. 
And whenever I tell the story, I'm like, you know, there's this sort of pause in the moment where I sort of say, you know, just to be clear, like the story has an ending. <laughs> but like, it could have gone either way. Like yeah. if anyone had like one more cup of coffee or one less cup of coffee, had traffic been a little worse or a little better, like we could have gone either way. We were really on the fence. Because uh, on the one hand, we're like, all we wanted was to stop this patio. This was our job. We were so excited to stop the patio when we were going to win and we were going to get everything we wanted for. But on the other hand, um, when we thought about it, if we stopped the patio, it wouldn't make the noise any better. It would probably make the noise worse because the bar owners would be mad at us now and would have no incentive to like keep the noise down. But on the other hand, this deal the council was proposing might actually shut down the patio. Oh, sorry, might actually fix the noise and keep the patio. And so we talked to him, we talked to him, and we really kind of were, but in the end we said yes to the deal. And the counselor took the deal, wrote it up, went to council, took 20 minutes to write it up. Within a couple of weeks, uh, the patio was open. Within a couple of weeks, the noise levels were really massively better than they were before. The patio was like, in many ways, a pleasant addition to the neighborhood. Uh, and uh, I was really, and this was all before I did all this negotiation stuff, and it was soon after I did this that I encountered the negotiation stuff, and I was like, oh my god, that's, like, soon after I, I had this experience, I was really thinking about it. Like, I was like, it seemed like we won, and then this thing happened that was, like, better than that. Hmm. And it was soon after I did that that, like, a friend of mine showed me the some of the material that I'm teaching now. He was like, oh, here, I'm, you might be interested in this negotiation framework, and my head exploded. I was like, hmm. oh, that was the thing. That was the thing that happened. So, like, when you were talking about the idea of positions and, like, you want to get keep the other person's position, I'm like, oh, you... And getting at the underlying interest. I'm like, oh, you have to do that with yourself, too. Because, like, one... There's a whole bunch of things that happen in that story. But one of them is that um, we did this really common thing where we had an interest, which is that we wanted it to be quiet in our apartments. And from that interest, we developed a position, which was that we wanted to stop the patio, which is reasonable. But then what we did was we held on to that position of stopping the patio to the point where we totally forgot about the interest. Like, we don't care about the interest anymore. Now we just want to stop the patio. So even when someone comes to us and says, hey, here's a way that you can um, have quiet in your apartment. By the way, these guys are going to get their patio. We were like, no. <laughs> like, our first response was to be like, even though they were like, here, we, we have a solution to your problem. You're like, no, 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 I'm already latched onto this other position. Even though the position doesn't change my, doesn't fix my problem. But you get fixated on it, right? And I think we do that all the time. Yeah. So one thing that happens there is that we got fixated on a position and we lost track of our underlying interest. The other thing that we did, you want to hear about the other thing that we did yeah. was that we, uh, the other thing that we did was that we um, made the situation antagonistic um, in a way that was really costly because, and this is something people do all the time too, you, you, you take a situation and you make it more and more antagonistic uh, and lose track of the fact that like that's not going to serve your purpose well. So in, so in this particular case, um, and again, this is the thing about under, underlying interest sort of having multiple layers. I want it. I want the. I want there to be no patio because I want it to be quiet in my apartment so I can feel comfortable and good in my home. That's the real underlying interest. The deeper mm -hmm. interest. I want to feel comfortable and good in my home and be able to sleep at night. Mm -hmm. I lost more. I lost some sleep because of the noise, but I lost more sleep because of the acrimony that mm -hmm. I created. Mm -hmm. And the idea that I wasn't going to feel comfortable in my home by making enemies of the people who operated a business. Like, I wasn't going to feel good in my home if I, like, crushed their business. I'm like, oh, here's, there's the guy who crushed our dreams. Like, good morning. <laughs> you know, like, I'm going to feel awful and they're yeah. going to feel awful. But people, we lose track of that. And so we create all this antagonism, um, even when that antagonism is, is costly to us. Uh, and, and in doing that, what we did was we destroyed 
potentially, like, had we said no, and that's the thing, I think the thing that I've been having struggling, I've been struggling with a little bit in this conversation is just like this idea of like creating or destroying value in negotiation. That I think all, a lot of the assumption in negotiation around um, antagonism has to do with the idea that, with a zero-sum idea of negotiation, the idea that in a negotiation, the, the amount of value is fixed. But it's very rare in a negotiation that the amount of actual value is fixed. There are very often opportunities to create value. And if you're, a, if you're the pessimistic sort, you can at least acknowledge that there are opportunities to destroy value that you might want to avoid. Mm. Um, so it's not zero-sum. If you can just destroy value, there's still not zero-sum. And so part of the goal of a negotiator is to try to create as much value as you can and or try to avoid destroying value. So in this case, the thing I think about is like, had we said no patio, we would have the amount of value would have been that we would still have noise in our apartment, they wouldn't have the patio that they wanted. But then we say yes to, the, to, the, to that deal, they get the patio that they want, which creates more value. We get quiet in our apartment, which creates more value. We get this patio in our neighborhood that turns out to be like a net probably positive thing, so we get like a little more value. So we've actually, like in those different outcomes, the total amount of value is different. And that's really important. Um, it's really important to understand that. Uh, Oh, and then the last thing in this story, there's just so much. The last thing, and I think maybe one that really connects too, is that desire to win. That if we, that sort of paradoxically in that story, in order to get what we really want, one thing that we had to abandon was the desire to be the victors, to be the winners. Because if we go in and we shut down their patio, like for months and months we fight over the patio and then we shut down the patio, then we can wave a flag in the air and be like, we won and they lost. It's unambiguous. We are the winners. They are the losers. I'm in my apartment waving my victory flag, unable to sleep because of all the loud noise from the thing. If we say yes to the patio, it's not clear that we're the victors. It's certainly not clear that there's a winner and loser. We sort of have to give up. But so, so part of why we were so psyched to shut down the patio is that we had that like that like blood of victory. Like we were so excited. Mm -hmm. To win, to win out over them. But I say paradoxically, but to me it's so common that it almost doesn't seem like a paradox anymore. Like in so many cases, our desire to be the victor over the other party comes at, a, at an enormous cost to ourselves, which mm -hmm. ends up making things worse than if we just didn't have to be the victor. Like in a prisoner's dilemma, right? Mm -hmm. Like the, 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 race to, the race to do better than the other person in the prisoner's dilemma is what pushes you down to the bottom of the value matrix, kind mm -hmm. of. Um, but anyway, that's, that's, that's a long That's a that long huge. Uh, it's like... It feels like one of those lessons. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns and I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before and this helped. Now a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time and the question is time for what? If our time was unlimited how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, 
suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. So you want to make better decisions and you have a business. You have a business and you want to make better decisions in that business. You need some sort of key performance indicators, a system for measuring what you're up to, what you're doing. Measurable values that demonstrate how effectively your company is achieving your key business objectives. That's a KPI. And I have a recommendation for you. It's called NetSuite. You should be using NetSuite. Here's here's why. So your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Every business that's doing well, even if it's just starting to kind of do well, it'll start to form some fissures here and there. Things you used to do in a day will start taking a week and you'll have all sorts of manual processes that just there's too many. You can't get to everything and you don't have one source of truth to make sense of it all, to make those better decisions. If that's you, you should know about three numbers. These are three numbers you should know. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. That's a big number. 37,000. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system. Streaming accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. 25? 25 years? 25 years of helping businesses do more with less. Close their books in days, not weeks. And drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. You don't want some sort of operation or app that's just made for whoever comes along. No, you get a customized solution for creating those KPIs that you need. One efficient system with one source of truth made for one business, your business. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. When you have everything you need in one place, all these biases, all these fallacies that I talk about on this program, it's an incredible way to apply everything you learn about making better decisions by having one source from which to pull your evidence, your information. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance for nothing. Absolutely free. You just go to netsuite.com slash not so smart. You get it for free. That's netsuite.com slash not so smart to get your own KPI checklist. One more time, netsuite.com slash not so smart. <laughs>
And now we return to our program. My name is David McCraney, and this is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. From here forward, it's just a conversation between me and Misha Globerman. He teaches negotiation. He's also a professional facilitator. And he has a lot of things to say about how to talk to people about things. Also, this is a conversation in a kitchen, so please forgive the hum of the stuff in the kitchen. All right, here we go. Uh, I find that you're always, uh, you have really fascinating ways of looking at things, and I often realize that uh, I have been stuck in a rut and didn't even know it. And I guess one of the things that, uh, that you mentioned earlier that um, I think there is a sense that um, the way we work things out is debate. Debate, debate right. is yeah. it. Like, debate, oh, first. Get, let's go get this person who has a dangerous idea and bring them in front of this person who has a more mainstream idea and have them debate, and then we, the audience, will now become enlightened. And maybe even one of the two will like go, hmm, I was wrong. Yeah. And then we do that a lot, and then we're going to churn up some really great stuff. Like, yeah. The bait um, is the worst, which is a kind of, I feel like I'm undercutting my own claim in some ways. <laughs> I'm like taking an antagonistic stance against antagonism. But yeah, I mean, it feels to me like debate. It's a really, really, really. Um, antagonistic way to approach difference of opinion. Whenever I think about debate, I feel like debate is like the first step in like like a society, a culture deciding to become less violent mm. and they're like, okay, like so the way we've settled our differences up until now is like we've like divided up into two teams and like everybody's going to be on one team or the other and then we're going to like hit each other with weapons until one team loses and then like that and then the other team will be the winner and then like we'll know what's going on. And then debate is saying like you know, violence is bad. So instead, what we'll do is let's divide ourselves into two teams and attack each other with words. And one team's right and one team's wrong. And at the over, at the end, we'll know which team is right and which team. So you're sort of you're sort of reenacting the same model. And like you're doing it without violence, which just to be clear is a tremendous step forward. I mean, I'm not I'm not like equating the two, but you're sort of using the exact same model of two sides and victor and loser and antagonism and 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 again, really awesomely taken out the violence. But it's still that same model and. Um, that seems unfortunate, and it seems unnecessary. Um, uh, and that there's a lot of different ways to approach people seeing things differently. And, 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 and a big part of it, too, and this kind of comes back to, like, the thing that you were talking about earlier about sort of saying what's obvious, is that in a situation where you're going to have a debate, I think a really important question to ask is to say, like, what are you actually trying to accomplish? Like, what are you trying... Like, so for instance, is, is what you're trying to do to get closer to the truth. Like, that might be what you're trying to do. And if, and if what you're trying to do is to get closer to the truth, you might think, and, and there are people who disagree. And, and, and one thing I, I don't want to, like, I'm not trying to gloss over the idea that people are disagree. People disagree. And I'm not even trying to pretend that everybody's opinion is equally valuable. Like, that's okay, too. But, you know, um... But if, if you have two people who see things differently and what they want to do is get closer to the truth, you might not think that the best mechanism in which to do that is for them to have a conversation where 
they each try to persuade, where, where each of them, is, their goal is to try to persuade each other. So like one of the big problems with debate, for instance, is like if, if I'm in a debate with you, if you and I are like, oh, let's, we disagree, let's have a debate. If at the end of it, I change my mind, I am the loser, mm -hmm. which is fucked up. Mm -hmm. It's messed up. Like if you think about it, what's happened is I'm now, I've now emerged smarter. I've learned something new. That should be a good thing. Mm -hmm. But a debate frames the conversation in such a way that if I emerge smarter and learn something new, I'm the loser. Mm -hmm. So the way to win in a debate, specifically the conditions of victory, are to emerge no smarter than you went in. To emerge understanding the issue no smarter than you went in. That seems problematic. Um, so that's just kind of on, on that level. Um, it also does, again, if. if I guess uh, when I teach the class, when I, in my negotiation class, one of the things that we teach, one of the things that we teach is like a real small shift in questions. So, and so one shift of a framing question is, if you're in a situation with someone else where you disagree about something, the natural question to ask yourself is to ask yourself, which one of us is right? Which is basically the debate question. Um, and then what I say is I say, what if, you were, what if instead of asking which one of us is right, you were to ask, why do we see this differently? And the idea is that if you make that shift, that second question, all of a sudden you're doing something really different. Mm -hmm. Because first of all, which one of us is right is basically it's a closed, it's, we, it's not an open-ended question, it's a closed question. Which one of us is right is a multiple choice question. It's either Misha or David, that's it. Mm -hmm. So at the end of it, what we're going to know is either you're right, good for you, and, and I'm wrong, or I'm right, that's it. So there's just one time. But on the other hand, why do we see things differently? That's an open-ended question, that's an essay question. And we can start to explore that. Mm -hmm. Even more importantly, though, if you and I are dis if we're disagreeing and we say, let's have a debate to see who's right, we are working um, against each other, we're working across purposes. You're, you're pushing for side David is right, I'm pushing for side Misha is right, typically, if we're normal humans, right, we're going to try to win. Which means that, for instance, um, if you give me a point for your side, I'm going to just immediately try to think of a counterpoint and try to get you back. Or, or if I know information that doesn't support my side, I'm going to conceal it because my job is to win. It doesn't help me to share information that doesn't support my side. On the other hand, if we're exploring the question, why do we see things differently? That's a question that we can, um, we can face that question together. We can work collaboratively, even while disagreeing. We can say, yes, we both disagree, but we have a shared interest in understanding why we see things differently and understanding where that difference comes from. And so now we're not working against each other, we're working, we could be working together. And again, I don't want to, it's not like Pollyannish. I'm not pretending that we don't disagree. Like we might disagree really fervently. I'm also not even pretending that I think like your view's equally valid to mine. I think like, I might think my view's totally great and your view's a bunch of garbage. But even still, we can still work collaboratively to understand where do those differences come from um, and do that in a way that's, uh, we we're working on that together. And then, and then at the end of that conversation, we might actually come out both understanding the issue a little bit better and also understanding our disagreement better. And we might still leave with the same opinions we went in with. Um, and that, I think, is also really important. I think that's a really undervalued way for di dialogue to progress, is to come out of and say, you know what, at the end of the day, um, I still feel that, you know, maybe you and I disagree about gun control at the end of the conversation. I still feel the same way I do about gun control, but my understanding of your position is deeper and my understanding of the nature of our differences is deeper and my understanding of why you might think this thing that's so different from mine is deeper. Uh, and I get it more and I still am totally, I just haven't budged to an inch, but like my understanding, I think that's really helpful. I think that's important. Yeah, you know, when Lee Rawls was in the show, he did uh, you know, Israeli-Palestine negotiation and, mm -hmm. our, and he said the one question is never, he said in 40 years of doing it, 
no one has ever asked, you know, what the, um, you know, what the other person is, uh, wants out of this, you know, yeah. this situation. Like, they, they're not interested in what the other person has this, thinks. Like, yeah. they want to present what they think. It's very, yeah. they feel like they haven't been heard. Yeah. That's their more, number one goal. And they never open up with saying, like, so what is your position? Right. There? And so, and so there's a bunch of stuff to remember about that. Like, and that's, so that's a really useful information. And I'm not going to jump into, like, this sort of negotiation advice. So a really useful thing to understand is that everybody, by nature, going in, starts off just thinking about what they want and their view of the situation. Um, but if you're in a, an actual negotiation, and a negotiation means something where you and the other party have to come to an agreement together, you're trying to reach an agreement together. Um, that's a terrible strategy for solving the problem. Right? Like, it's not going to work. And so, again, that's, again, my question is, like, you have that starting question of, like, what are you actually trying to get here? So people so, so go into a negotiation and say, well, here's what I'm going to try to do. I'm going to persuade them to my point of view. I'm going to do all these other kinds of things. And say, well, what are you actually trying to get? Well, what I want is an agreement that serves my needs and that they're going to agree to, which means it has to serve their needs. So you might not think you care about their needs. That's a really important thing in negotiation. Mm -hmm. Typically, for most of us, especially when the stakes are high, you know, we think, well, I just care about my needs. I don't care about their needs. But that's a huge mistake because you're only going to come to an agreement if you come to an agreement that suits their needs. So even if you're just, I mean, you might be a nice person and actually care about the other person, which I, I encourage. I think it's nice to be nice. But even if you're just a selfish jerk, um, even if, if you're just totally self-interested, you know, you're, you're homo economists, you just care about your own self-interests, um, the way to meet your interests in, another, in a negotiation is to, is to care about the other person's interests. That the, only, the only way you're going to get them on board is to care about their interests. But everyone makes that mistake. Everyone. I mean, just um, by nature we do, and even with training we do. And you sort of think, well, I don't really care about them. I'm just going to think about me. And it's kind of a paradox, because you'd think that thinking about yourself would serve you well. <laughs> but it doesn't. Like in a negotiation, by definition, you really have to think about what the other side wants. And we're not good at it. Hmm. We're really not. So it takes training. Well, you, like, well yeah, let's talk about negotiation. Okay, the just like, the thing, And I, I imagine sure, this sure, is sure. going to be extremely fascinating to anyone in the audience. Mm -hmm. um, what are some ways that typically manifest that you've seen where, you know, uh, I think when, when, when I think negotiation, I start to think of these big, you know, uh, you know meeting of two empires right. kind of thing. Right. Where, is, where do you so that, see? So that definition is really important. So that, this is something I always say like, right at the beginning of class. So I, I teach the, these courses and they come from a negotiation framework, but I kind of try to use the word negotiation less and less or I kind of don't make it front and center because of what you said. Because I think for most people, they have these really narrow associations. So they think like a, like an international peace treaty or, and they think, uh, you know, maybe trying to get a, a raise at work or like people are like, you know, uh, but they're like, I don't do that in my job. Or they're like, you know, I guess getting a hostage out of a building, but I don't get hostages out of building in my job. It's not what I do. But the definition that I work with here, which is kind of the definition I think that people who do this work use is like, it's any time you have two or more people who have to make a decision together. And that is everything. It's like literally, not literally everything, but pretty close to everything. Yeah, so it's, so multiple it's multiple like, times a day. Yeah, just most of your interaction with other people. Friends, yeah, so, you know, deciding what movie to see with a friend is a negotiation. You know, resolving a difficulty with a coworker is a negotiation. Any interaction you have with any client in work, with any supplier, work, and also even within hierarchies, like people, um, because the reality of, I mean, I think like, you know, seventy-five years ago, we had this sort of fantasy about hierarchies that it was things actually just work top down and someone could issue an order from the top an organizational work is all, all the way down but it's not true at every level 
it's subject to all kinds of interpretation and leeway and freedom. And, you know, if you've ever had someone work for you, you know it's not like they're this magic robot who does exactly what they tell you. They Unfortunately, they're humans and they interpret yeah. things in different ways. So all this stuff, so all those things are all um, negotiations. They're all s situations where people make decisions together. Uh, so it's huge. It's like, just like, enormous. and then, so that's part of why I call the course, why I don't call the course, like, fundamentals of negotiation. I call it how to talk to people about things, because the idea is just like everybody you deal with all the time. Mm -hmm. These are the principles that apply. Um, and part of what's so powerful and nice about this stuff, like when you talk about the international peace treaties, is that the principles, a lot of the principles that get sort of studied and taught, like they get used in international peace treaties, but they also get used in um, dealing with like um, family disputes, and they also get dealt with in business stuff, and you can also use them for child rearing. And part of what's so nice about it for me, for teaching this stuff, is I really like the idea of people kind of being integrated. Mm -hmm. And so I sort of like the idea that you might have this, like I guess that's to me what integrity is. Like integrity is like you have principles and you don't treat, you know, you don't have like one set of rules that you use at work and another set of rules that you use at home. Like you kind of have a set of rules, you know. Uh, and I kind of like that about this stuff. Oftentimes it feels like, um, and there's a certain, I think, personality type or that does this, where you, you're like, do I have to adhere to my values or my principles um, or it with ease is that it's going to be easy for me in this environment yeah. or am I now being challenged in a way that I have to make a fuss about it what do you mean or just uh, the the idea that uh, maybe your employer has a has asked you to do something a certain way and you feel like that runs against the way you've done things in other organizations in the past and you have a better way of doing things right and so you feel not, you don't feel like there's an avenue for negotiation. You feel like you're just simply being attacked, or that you're you're now in an antagonistic situation with someone. Right. And um, I'm wondering if that's something that can be like nipped in the bud right away with expectations. Mm. Uh, like, who's who's who? Where does the responsibility lie? You know, does it, is it the person who's got this attitude, or is it the organization itself needs to? to like expect that attitude and say something in advance that like you know. yeah so that question of who does the respond with whom does the responsibility lie as an individual in that situation i kind of feel like it's the wrong question to ask yourself because for me responsibility lies with me always mm. always mm. like and that doesn't mean that even if i'm in a situation that's vastly unfair for me this the responsibility lies with relies with me that, that, that might I'm trying to get how to put it. I mean, I don't want to suggest there aren't situations that are unjust, because there are, but it's still... Then it's up to me to point out that it's unjust if I'm in, if I'm in that situation, mm -hmm. I guess. I'm not sure I'm getting that. I'm not sure I'm getting that right. Let me, try, let me come back to your example. So you talk about, like... You're like, okay, I'm at a job. My boss tells me to do something. I... I know there's a better way to do it. Mm -hmm. And so this feels like an antagonistic situation. Mm -hmm. And I guess to me, I'm like, okay, let's take that apart. So my boss tells me to do something. I know there's a better way to do it. So right off, I'm like, okay, let's take that apart. And it's like, I would want to re-examine that. Like, to, to shift that from, like, this kind of very, like, partisan inside my own head mm. way where it's mm. like, I know... Because right off the bat, that's one of the problems, right? Is that we treat our own beliefs as if they're facts. Mm -hmm. Right? So it's like, I think, so, and I think a better way to step back from that is to say, well, 
clearly the boss, he has a way, he has an idea that, of what's the best way to do it. And I have a way, idea of what's the best way to do it. Our ideas are different. Assuming he's not, you know, let's assume for a second he's not like a complete idiot or moron. Like, mm-hmm. maybe it merits investigation that our ideas are different mm-hmm. and find out where that is as opposed to just like immediately go into like, I'm right. I know I'm right. And then the next step in what you, when you said was like, you know, so now we're in an antagonistic situation. And to me, I'm like, that's only an antagonist. You can make that an antagonistic situation. But that's not inherent. And it might be one. I mean, depending on who your boss is. But that's not inherently an antagonistic situation, right? That could be, like, you can imagine a world where you have a boss and where your boss says, hey, I'd like you to do things this way. And you say, hey, um, that's interesting that you suggest that way of doing it. I would have thought to do it a really different way. Um, and we clearly see it differently. And I, and I think it might be great for us to figure out what that difference is. There's nothing antagonistic about that. So, so, so I think for a lot of people, just as soon as there's a difference of opinion, they're like, well, now it must be antagonistic. But I think one of the things that I want to allow for is to say, no, like there doesn't, doesn't have to be. You might have different ideas about what to do and say, hey, you know, we have different things about what to do. Let's, let's work together on how to solve that yeah. and be open to the idea that maybe you're going to learn something and not, as opposed to saying, oh, I'm going to try to push for my idea, show my idea is right and show that I is wrong, which doesn't get good outcomes for a million reasons it doesn't. To say like, hey, let's, you know, this, let's have the starting assumption be that like, if you and I see things differently, it might be because you know something I don't know. It might be because, you know, you know, it might be because some part of my view isn't right. Um, and that ties in, that's I think one of the things where my work connects a lot with your work. Like I think for some, to some people seeing when I brought you in, people like didn't quite see why it's so connected. Yeah, but to yeah. me like a really fundamental part of what it is to be a good negotiator and to be a good communicator is to understand that like, oh, the things that are in my head aren't like, like we just assume that like, oh, everything's in my head is just like right. All of my beliefs are right. Mm-hmm. And if someone disagrees with me, it's because their beliefs are wrong. If somebody else's were right, then those would be my beliefs. Yeah, exactly. You know, and so like being able to get out of that is a huge part of problem solving. And, and then, and it goes down this path. If you think that, then you go down this path where if someone, if your boss, like if, so if you know your way is right, and your boss suggests doing things a different way. This is, you sort of take through that naive realism story, right? Where it's like, I, it's like, well, probably he's trying to screw me up. Mm-hmm. He's proposing a way that's worse than the best way. Why would he do that? Well, only because he's my enemy. So immediately, like, you go into this mode. So, so either there's only there's only two possibilities. Either he's trying to trip me up, and so he's my enemy, and I should fight him, or else he's an idiot, and I have to fix him. So I can either fight him or fix him. Those are my only options. But if you can get out of that mindset where you assume that all of your beliefs are true then all of a sudden you're like oh wait here's a person who sees things who sees things differently from me maybe that merits exploration uh yeah well you or you said that early on when you if you think of it if you frame it as um how how why do we see this differently um instead of saying which one of us is right um and you said that if it serves you know it serves my needs and um and they'll agree to it um how do we what is the what are some ways that you found are good ways to sort of ping the other person to figure out what are their interests where are they coming oh, sure. from yeah so like if you're actually dealing with like a, like you're trying to solve a problem together like it's a concrete thing it's not or, i mean it can work in other situations too but so, so the funny thing to find out where people are coming from the really undervalued way is to ask them and like it sounds really obvious but people don't do it Right? So like, so like if all you just did was like, when you go into a negotiation, be like, hey, what are you hoping for here? You are now like 80%, you're like in like wow. the top 20% yeah. <laughs> of all negotiators ever. Like if you could just go into the conversation and be like, hey, what are you hoping for here? And then what you do is you shut up and listen for two minutes. 
and really try to listen and actually absorb the information. So you don't just sort of smile and nod. You don't practice what you're doing, what you're going to say next. You actually try to absorb the information. You let yourself be surprised. You know, you don't just sort of slot it into what you already think. Um, if you just do that, you're like a superstar. You're great. And then if you want to be super duper advanced, when they tell you that, you say, you say, hey, what are you hoping for here? And they tell you. Then you say, uh, why is that important to you? And then they're going to tell you something deeper. And then you can even just keep asking that question. You say, so why is, why is that important to you? You know, um, because typically people's interests kind of have deeper and deeper levels. And, mm -hmm. and the deeper you can get, the better you can problem solve, basically. Yeah. Like the more you kind of understand what's up. Um, so that's one thing. And then, uh, and in some situations, people will just tell you. Um, so a big thing is just to ask them and let them tell you. Sometimes they don't want to tell you. And if they don't want to tell you, there's a few things you can do. One thing you can do, sometimes they don't want to tell you because they don't feel like you're in a trusting, collaborative relationship. So one way you can help with that is talk about what you want. Say, hey, look, just for example, here's what I really want out of this deal. Here's what, here's what matters to me here. Here's what I really care about. Uh, you know, and sometimes that'll open them up. Or another thing you can do is you can say, hey, you know, if, if I were in your situation, I'd be really concerned about this. Uh, if I were, you know, if I were in your situation, I'd, um, if we were trying to make a deal and I were in your situation, I'd be concerned about whether you could trust me. Mm. That's something that I'd be really worried about. And so I'm not sure if that's what you're concerned about. Yeah, I'm not sure if I can trust you. Okay, well, what can I do to help address that? Are there things that I can do? Um, or you might say, that's my concern. They might say, no, that's not my concern at all. Well, now you're already making progress. You're like, okay, what is your concern? And then they'll, then they'll tell you. Why does so, this feel so magical to me right now? <laughs> like, like, it's I like, super. I'm like hearing you, I'm like, again, it's like, it should have been obvious, but like, I'm imagining having that conversation right now. I'm like, oh, that sounds so. Is nice. there a specific conversation you're thinking of, or like? A... Uh, well, I'm thinking about arguments with my dad because it's yeah. that time of year, uh -huh. you know. Uh, and he, uh, like, he he drove me to the airport yeah. to get here, yeah. um, to so to save money on car parking, right? Nice. Um, and I always know that there's a chance we're going to be get we'll get into an argument. It's always going to be a chance. What do you What do you guys argue about? Politics always, right. and but because and like so, I'm just like I don't want to. I'm trying not to steer into politics. Yeah, yeah. Whatever is the news story of the day. Right. And then he wants to know what I think about it. And then yeah, yeah. I want to know what he thinks about it. And then he, what he really wants is to have a debate. And um, I spent years writing a book about, you know, how to change, <laughs> change people's <laughs> minds, right? But I'm not really interested in changing his mind. I, um, I'm okay with him having different a different set of values and a different set of, of what he, you know, how he wants. Uh, I am interested, however, in dissuading him from having a conspiracy, conspiratorial thinking, right? Then you are trying to change it. And I am trying to change it. That's a thing. It's hard, sure. right? It's hard. And But then I think about, you know, almost everyone I've asked in some way, if they, whatever, if they're persuasion experts, you know, they, they go the route of asking questions. Mm -hmm. And, um, but I hadn't thought about it in terms of negotiation. And, um... I'm thinking about how almost every time I've been in a negotiating framework, it has felt like I've got to get what I've got to get out of this. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm like, okay, who's going to be the who's going to be the better swordsman in this fight? Yeah. Who's going to have the trick? That's going to like do the spin move. That's going to yeah. And that's the, the huge them, and know? like the huge shift in like approach like the, and the study of negotiation that's happened over the last like several decades now is like to really try to get people out of the mindset that negotiation is like this combative enterprise where there's going to be a winner and a loser. And mm -hmm. the idea is that what you're actually trying to do is solve a problem together. Mm -hmm. And and again, that's not to gloss over the fact that you might want different things. You might even have interests that are opposed to each other. Mm -hmm. But that the more that you, um, 
go into combative mode, the more you're going to destroy value. Like in literal combat, that's what happens, right? You go and you sort of fight each other, and at the end of it, you're like, oh, you know, you know, I, I, you know, I, you know, he got hurt and I got hurt, but I got hurt less than him, so I won. Mm. But at the end of it, we both got hurt. Mm -hmm. Like we made things worse for both of us. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of the combative approaches to negotiation have that that um, outcome too. That you're trying to, you know, you end up missing opportunities to solve problems. You end up missing solutions that make things better for both parties you end up missing all these kinds of stuff if what you're trying to do is um, to win yeah I mean I don't know why we keep bringing up Trump I guess it's top of mind for so many yeah. of us he's got a book The Art of the Deal yeah. uh, it is um, that is contentious as to whether or not he really wrote this yeah. book but either way you know supposedly it it's, describes his approach and what you've seen in his um, in the negotiating practices that we're that he's going through right now whether it's with his own yeah. in his own government or with other governments and his approach is to like set things up where if you don't give me what I want this is what's going to happen yeah yeah for make, sure. a, make a choice do you want this bad thing to happen or do you yeah. want to give me what I want no and for sure okay so and I'll, I'll come back to what you were saying before I like this chain of thought yeah. but I was I'm like I guess I'm, in, I'm interested that this is such a different way from this other negotiating tactic which is something like you'd think comes out of like 1980s Wall Street or something yeah. where you're like okay here's the thing I want and here's what's going to happen if I don't get it you can make yeah. a choice now and that's just, that's a fantasy. That's like the movie version. There's no, no, like, no one who does, like, actual study. Like, I think that's one of the things that I encounter more when I teach the class is, like, I sort of started talking about, like, it's like the Hollywood 80s picture of negotiation. But no one who actually studies negotiation, like, is like, oh, this is how you negotiate. You go in and you, like, make a threat. Like, and then, like, you, like, like that's a strategy that has, like, a certain very narrow range of application and a really limited range of circumstances. But most of the time, what you want to be doing is you want to be problem solving. You want to be looking for opportunities for mutual gain. You want to be looking for stuff where it's like, oh, here's something that, like, you care about a lot and I don't care about very much. And so we can create, and here's the thing that I care about a lot and you don't care about very much. And we can create mutual value, right? Like, it's just basic, like, economics. Like, if we engage in a voluntary exchange at the end of the voluntary exchange both parties should be better off because i've given you something that you want more and you give me something else. so it's 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 sort of basic stuff um it makes for better hollywood like hollywood movies are all about winners and losers mm -hmm. and good guys and bad guys and fights Drama. so so hollywood movies turn negotiations into fights and we have that fantasy that that's what negotiation is but no one who really does like no, none of the research on negotiation is like, oh, that's how you should do it. It's not actually right. It's kind of a fantasy. Mm -hmm. And even Trump, I think I, mean, I haven't read his book, but I think even in his book, like eighty percent of his book is still like saying, like you know, yeah, look for mutual gain, look for ways to help each other. It's not what he does in his public policy talks. When he talks about trade talks, he talks about winning and losing in trade talks. And mm -hmm. for people who actually study negotiation, that's really frustrating because it's like that's not how, um, not how people talk about negotiation it's how he talks but it's not it's one of the many many areas in which um how trump thinks about things differs from how experts think about things so trump thinks about climate change differently from how climate scientists think about climate change he thinks about economic policy different from how economists think about economic policy and he thinks about negotiation different from how um negotiation experts think about it you know if you're someone who believes in experts and doesn't like trump you think that's why he's a monster if you're a trump supporter you probably think that's what makes him such an awesome renegade it's yeah. a, you know he breaks the rules in every single way but it's it's important to know that when trump talks about negotiations that way he's breaking the rules that's not the normal way that people who talk about oh, negotiation talk that's not that at all that's not people who like 
people who like if you were to go to like a negotiation studies program they wouldn't be like oh like you know that party won that negotiation that party lost it's like the whole point of negotiation is to get out of a zero-sum mentality um and to figure out how to actually create mutual gain that's what you know I can tell you one thing I know about negotiating science. It's like a nice thing to know, which is that like a lot of the, pre the, the, the sort of the sort of string of negotiation study that I know comes from a guy named Roger Fisher out of Harvard, out of Harvard Law School, and he, and the way he came to it was that he was I, I guess like around World War II, and he saw the war, and he saw like the devastation, mm. and he was like, there's got to be a better way for people to resolve differences. Like mm -hmm. this is a crate, you know this this is there's got to be a better way for people to figure things out mm -hmm. and so for him it really came out of being like you know how can people resolve differences better than with better than by fighting with each other mm -hmm. and then that led to all the study of negotiation and that study of negotiation led to applications in business and in law and all of those yeah. kinds of things but and those antagonistic models are everywhere and they're costly everywhere it's like a court so like the legal systems like that too right two people disagree what are we going to do we're going to go to court and we're going to engage in this process that's antagonistic and it's also costly to both parties right like a court case you know, even if I win the court case, like maybe I'll win, but the, but the case itself is still costly, the same way a war is yeah. costly. So the idea that these antagonistic contests are costly, they're always costly, where they're costly, um, is I think a really important yeah. insight, that, you know, and that if you can avoid those, uh, if you can, if you can avoid them, they're really, there was, I forget who it was, there was some like old general or something who was like, you know, it seems to me that every war ends in a peace, in a treaty, like, wouldn't it be great if we could just get to the start treaty? With the treaty. Just start with a treaty, like you know, like, like, you know. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess this, uh, even like with divorces, I mean, this is, I guess, a lot of people are going to have the. Unfortunately, a lot of people are going to have this experience. So, like, it's either going to be a situation where somebody's going to try to win and get the better deal, mm -hmm. or they're going to sit down and say, "What are you?" What is yeah. the best case scenario for the both of us in this thing? Yeah, that's been like a huge shift in the legal profession is working towards what like collaborative divorce practices, where the idea is like, yeah, you know what, what we could do is if we if we both if and that's a great example, if we're going into a divorce, if what we both are going to do is try to win, the one thing that that guarantees is we're going to make things really bad for both of us. And if we have kids, we're especially going to make things bad for our kids, which is something we care about. Mm -hmm. So again, it's that paradoxical thing. My effort to win, if what I do is try to win, what that means is you're also going to try to win. If what we both do is try to win, what we're going to do is we're going to destroy a lot of stuff. We're going to burn through a lot of money on lawyers. We're going to spend a lot of time on that. We're going to increase the acrimony. We're going to increase the bad feelings. We're going to cost a lot of money. All that. So my effort, so the efforts to win make things worse for everybody. Whereas if what I can say instead is instead of trying to win, what we're trying to do is try to come up with an outcome that actually works okay for both of us. And divorce is a great example. Even though we have a lot of bad feelings toward each other, even though we don't love each other anymore, mm -hmm. even though all those things. Um, but even still, even with someone you're divorcing, you know, um, it's still going to be costly to make. The more the more combative I make it, the more costly it's going to be for mm -hmm. both, not just for you, but for me too. So making it combative is costly, and that's I think a that's sort of a big part of the insight is that making things combative is costly, and you so you want to avoid it. Mm -hmm. Lawyers are costly, mm -hmm. you know. Um. So I'm seeing, I'm listen, listening to you, and I'm sort of imagining it as a framework, even if that's not how you put it, I'm like trying to like understand it in that way. And and I love your opening with, you know, what are you hoping for here? Yeah. And and if they're not willing to say, you can say, like, if I were in your situation, it's almost like Rappaport's rules where you like, mm -hmm. you try to, you say, well, I'm going to frame your argument the way I think you're, you would frame it. And, and, that, and that encourages them to go, well, no, not exactly mm -hmm. like that, more like this. And now you're, you've just almost tricked yeah. the person into having a conversation 
or this is what I'm hoping for, which is a huge thing to say, yeah. um, taking the first step, or I would imagine you'd want to trust, you'd imagine you're having issues with trust. I also am trying to figure out how I could trust you. Mm-hmm. How could I establish that trust? What can I do? Mm-hmm. Um, it reminds me of, of um, when you're trying to help someone um, uh, dealing with a, a struggle of some kind, either it's a, um, something happened in their life or they're having a, they have some problem with their own mental health and you don't, you're at a loss as to what your role is yeah. and you can feel like there's an antagonism that's starting to bubble up. And there was a phrase I had read somewhere that has, was really beneficial to me and it was saying, how can I, how can I most be supportive of you in this yeah. situation? So Which is like such a, it's a huge, it's, it felt like. One, yeah, that's, I think one thing, one way of thinking about the thing that you're trying to undo in this approach to negotiation is that like in almost any situation, very often the thing that we fall into is we try to like, oh, it is, I'm going to unilaterally fix this. And that can be true in a combative negotiation where it's like, I'm going to win, but it can also be true in helping a friend to be like, oh, it's my job to figure out how to help you. Uh And like in a huge number of situations, finding a way to make the other person a partner is really helpful. Yeah. And you would think that would be, again, you think these things so, seem so obvious, like to be like, oh, I'm trying to help this person, what's the way to do it? Make them a partner. Uh, like it seems so obvious, and yet so often, you can be in like a two hour long conversation with someone where you're struggling and you're flip-flopping and you're feeling that you're pissing them off and you, you're, you're trying to figure out how to help them and it's not working, and all you have to do is yeah, ask them. Just oh, ask, and it's so, I don't know why, now, I mean, this yeah. is a question that I don't think everyone has the answer to, but uh, like, I, I, for me, I like, this always kicks off on the, on the side of like, why is that hard? Why did, why is it not obvious? Why is it only obvious in hindsight yeah. to just go ahead and ask? I don't know. I mean, I don't know if it's cultural or it's biological or what this feeling of like, I have to, my frame has to be, you have to go into my frame yeah. and that's the way this works. Instead of like actually coming across saying, I would need to understand something. I need to ask something. I need to participate yeah. with you. And again, it feels like that feels like the thing where sort of your work and my work connect is like, it's just that way in which like how much we are all stuck inside our own head and our own story, mm. you know? So it's like, okay, I have an idea for how I'm supposed to help you. So now what I'm going to do is I'm going to act on that idea. And then if it's not working, then I'm like, well, I just need to do it harder mm-hmm. or I need, or something's wrong with you. Something's wrong with the other person. With the, well, yeah, why is it? Yeah, it I'm to trying be. to help you and you're rejecting it. Therefore, there's something wrong with you mm-hmm. um, because you're just so, and, and again, if you're just sort of, if you take that sort of total naive realism view where it's just like, oh, my views are just right, then it's like, yeah, they must, they must just be broken if my help isn't helping them. Mm-hmm. But it's, course, you, to, you say you either had to fight them or fix them. Yeah. And it, <laughs> if you try either one of those things, uh, well, not good things happen often. Yeah. Uh, the so like I'm looking, I think about it like we're in this state. Like um, when they do tell you, like here's here's what I'm looking for, right? Mm-hmm. Like, what do we do with that information now? Because I'm, I'm looking for. well. Let's say that they're let's say I mean I know we're kind of talking in general. Do you, do you have any specific examples that would help to make frame all this? I don't know. Is there, I mean, is there something that you're thinking of? I don't have like a. Uh, no, I don't know, but I mean like. Uh, um, I know that uh, when I talked to the Rory Sutherland, he talk, he loved to talk about they wanted to. Um, there was a lot of complaints from the the uh, transportation system in the UK. It was a certain train, yeah. and they were brought in to consult, right? And the the situation there, I forget the exact train, but it was the it took a long time to get where it was going, and they were like, "Can it get there faster?" 
and the government was like, that would cost a whole lot of money. And people were like, I don't care. Let's spend a lot of money on this thing. And they asked them, is there a behavioral solution to this, a psychological path? And they were like, give them free Wi-Fi on the train. Yeah. And as soon as they gave them free Wi-Fi, people stopped, people stopped complaining. Yeah. The trip didn't become shorter, but it became less painful. Yeah. But So people in that situation weren't, didn't want what they told people that they wanted. And, yeah. I, and I'm wondering if that comes well, up I mean, in this. That, that's, that's an example of the why question. So before I was like, that was when I was like, oh, you have to ask, in, in the negotiation language, this is this is like the, tech, the technical, not super technical, but like the way that people talk about this negotiation is they talk about this distinction between positions and interests. So the position is kind of the thing that you say you want. The interest is the underlying reason why you want it. Mm. And the shift that people try to make in negotiations is to make that shift where typically what we talk about in negotiations is, is we are, our inclination is to talk about positions. And very often the positions are antagonistic to each other. But once you get down to the under, once you get, the deeper you get down into underlying interests, the easier it starts to become to start to find other solutions. So that's so the way I would sort of reframe that story in negotiation language is people say, you know, we need the train to be faster. Right? There's some group of parties saying we need the train to be faster. There's another group of parties saying like, it's going to cost too much money. We can't make the train faster. Mm -hmm. You know, and so now you have these warring positions where it's like, you know, make the train faster. No, make the train faster. No, and that's like a really standard positional battle. Is like, it's just like we need this thing. You can't have this thing. If you have the conversation and you say. Why do you need to make the train faster? And people start to say, well, you know, we're on the train. We have nothing to do. I've got all this stuff I have to do. And I can't do all the stuff I have to do because I'm sitting on the train and I can't do anything. Well, what's some of the stuff you have to do? Well, I have to make dinner and I have to look after my kids and I have to answer all these emails. Well, hmm, you can't look after your kids on the train. You can't make dinner on the train. But you can, we might be able to help you answer all your emails on the train. How would you do, right? Yeah. You know, uh, and so you have to have that underlying interest, you know. Um, but it's only once you have the conversation about the underlying interest that you can do that. This is super fascinating to me in, in that we're. I see this all throughout. This also where we where we're, are, what we do intersects, and in that people have people are often having the conversation about this. They're having this positional battle, and they get. Um, blind to the eye that becomes that's what that's what we're talking about that's what we've always like you know when I'm having a debate or a conversation or um, I'm um, trying to understand like the nature of my own behavior or um, if you're trying to like having even an artistic discussion where you're like how do we uh, why is this movie not working what can we do to fix the movie like yeah, yeah. we often are having a conversation about these salient aspects that we have assumed are the real uh, that these are the, these are what's driving our feelings about this. Right. Um, one example I can think of is like uh, people say CGI sucks in movies, right. and uh, but they only say that about movies that aren't very good, right? Because they can't pinpoint. Because they can tell that it's CGI. Yeah, they can't right, right. pinpoint. So when you know that it's CGI, you know that it sucks. Like right. Right, but sort of by definition, if you know it's CGI, yeah, that be, means that it sucks. Yeah, yeah. and or you know, if the movie's bad and you can't pinpoint why the movie's bad because it has something to do with storytelling or characterization right. that. Or, or bad acting that's just bad, not not bad enough to quite notice, but something's off. Yeah. Like you, it's the introspection illusion. So you can't, you don't know why it is that you feel the way you feel. Yeah. So you try to look for something that's salient, which would be what's the most salient thing. Well, it was full of CGI. It's like mm. it's like a cartoon or a video yeah, right. game. Yeah. And so now your argument for your, to yourself, your reasoning is that movie was bad because of all the CGI. And then that becomes a conversation, and then now a movie executive might be like, turn down the right, CGI sure, sure, sure. in, in, in the next movie we make. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's like this positional battle you're talking about where like, 
all these decisions are being made about a thing that has nothing to do with what's actually the problem with this yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah. And or, or it does fix the problem, but it's a really expensive way to do it. You know, like, yeah. you know, and it's not, yeah, or it's not, yeah, exactly. We're like, you know, what they really just want is a simple story told well. And I don't care if I can, if that CGI is terrible, I don't care if it looks good, you know, like, you know, um, I can still watch a movie made in the 1930s and 40s and forgive everything, every movie making convention that today would not pass muster if it's done well. Or, you know, Quentin Tarantino still does the rear projection in the car scene oh, yeah, yeah. and it's considered quaint and fun because the movie that it's within is well made. You throw that in a poorly made movie and you're like, oh, and. Yeah, and they did such a <laughs> And so it's to me that you just, you, so instead of uh, taking people's positions at face value, a way to, uh, to actually respect them is to ask, yeah, is to try to figure out the, what the interest is. I can see it applicable across domains and the, like, trying to figure, because also I think from a psychological perspective, like with the introspection illusion is you, um, you rarely can take people at their word when they tell you like why they did what they did or right. thought what they thought or yeah. felt what they felt yeah. because the antecedent to that thought, feeling, or behavior it might be something they haven't noticed yeah. um, or it might be something that they're unwilling to, to say out loud um, and it seems to come up in these negotiation frameworks where um, that salient thing is you, you move all of your energy into protecting I have come up with a narrative that makes this make sense and I'm, I commit to it so hard that I, I lose track of what got me there in the first place yeah. what was the motivation to even create that narrative yeah. Yeah. and I've seen that happen in interpersonal um, whether it's with friends family lovers or whatever where you points of contention start to be about a concrete argument yeah. but the underlying thing that's creating the argument is never addressed yeah and I think that's a lot of the stuff. I mean, the thing that's come up a lot for me in the past few years is like the kind of thing is like, that's how do you talk to your dad who has different politics than you? And like, it's funny because people always, for me, it's like, like people always like bring it up as a negotiation. And for me, I'm like, that's not a negotiation. Like you're not, like just by my definition of what a negotiation is, there's, there's actually not a negotiation you're engaged in there. There's not a decision that you're trying to make together. There's not a task. Like it would be different if like you and your dad had one ballot and you had to decide together how to cast it. That would be a negotiation. <laughs> but that's not how it works. You get to vote, he gets to vote. Like you can just... Oh, that's very interesting. Right? You know, so the question is more like what's actually going on in that conversation? What are you... Um, what's happening? And I think in a lot of those conversations what's happening is like is someone... And it's not to say the politics don't matter. The politics do matter. But I think that a, an important part of the conversation very often is like, I'm sad that you're so different from me, mm -hmm. you know? And that maybe that's the conversation that, you know, that maybe the conversation isn't even the sort of like, I want to understand your point of view. Let's understand. Let's try to understand. It might be like, oh, it makes me, you know, I'm sad that you're so, are you sad I'm so different from you? Mm. Like, I, you know, that seems like that's part of why those conversations often get so charged with family. Because otherwise it would be just as charged with anybody, but it's not, right? It's just with family. And so part of it is like, yeah, that's part of what's going on. So maybe yeah. that's the, you know, why are you trying to have this conversation? Because I want to love and respect my dad and it's hard to love and respect someone who sees the world so differently. And, and you want them to love and respect you and you feel like you're not getting that. Yeah, whatever those things are. And so maybe, I feel like like maybe three quarters of those conversations would involve people being like, yeah, of course I, yes, of course I, you know, I understand you see things different for me and it pains me, but of course I still love and respect you. Like if the two parties can say that to each other, that might actually be the yeah. conversation that needs to happen in that case. I mean, again, that's not a negotiation. I'm kind of stepping outside of my own expertise a little bit. But, but, it's, but it's, it's in the same place of yeah. that, like making such an, 
living on assumptions yeah. and trusting your assumptions more, more than, and not, you know, trusting your assumptions to the point that you're yeah. not going to ask or even reach out or be vulnerable to the other party because that in some way is going to threaten the assumption. Yeah. And I guess one thing, and also like being like, also like asking like, what is this conversation for is a really important question. Like what is this conversation for? What would it look like for this conversation to go well? You know, is the strategy I'm taking likely to bring out that like, that's also is, is the strategy I'm taking likely to bring out the result I want? That's a really common question that like can blow things up. Like, are you like, Oh, right. Of course they're not going to change their mind. So what am I actually trying to do? It's interesting. This is like blows up a lot of things that I've been fascinated with lately. In, in that, you know, um, why is it so important to change the other person's mind anyway? Yeah, so that's a really important question to ask yourself. And then I think in a lot of I see this in a lot of internet debates. Like, like if I could just change that person's mind to match mine, it solves the whole thing. Yeah. Like, okay. like, but but a lot of politics is supposed to be like here's a problem in society, and we have two different approaches, or maybe we have a hundred different approaches to it, and. Um, the the end goal of this conversation is that my we use the solution that we've decided is the right one, and if you agree to do that, then there we go, we're, we've made it. Yeah. Instead of reaching out and coming to like any kind yeah. of collaboration and at all. Just, and again, it's that's just that thing of being stuck in your own head. Like the thing is, like like if I'm just stuck in my own head and I'm like, well, if I'm right. All I need to do is tell you that I'm right. <laughs> but the problem is, if it, if I take just even a second to be like, oh right, you're you've got your own opinion too yeah. so I think one of the things I always mention in the class is like I'm always like you know if I disagree with you then I think like um, oh the problem you know the solution is just for me to you know I know my point of view I know that it's well formed I know the good reasons behind it so all I have to do is describe you know describe those things to you and it would fix the problem mm-hmm. which would be a perfectly good solution were it not for the fact that you're thinking the same thing right like they're, like so when we think that it's almost as if our fantasies the other person sitting there thinking like wow I I'm probably wrong. I can't wait for Misha to tell me why. But like, they're never thinking that, right? The person's just thinking. So both parties are like trying to fix the other person. No one's actually here. And also because of that, no one's actually hearing anything. Because if all I'm trying to do is fix you, you might be giving me all this great information, but I'm so busy trying to fix you that all the information is just going to pass me by. I'm going to miss what actually might actually be useful information, but I'm going to miss it because I'm just so focused on trying to set you straight. And you're so focused trying to set me straight, but not actually... I love the, I love the patio story because it like it's such a gift in your life, right? And and I feel like um, we all deserve to get that that gift and and to be set down that path when you face the next situation where yeah. uh, and um, the idea that you didn't have to win is a huge part of it, but also the idea that like uh, if you did win, you don't you win. Get worse. Yeah. That, yeah. I think there's just a huge number of that's I think that's what Trump is like with trade wars. I mean that's like a real example. Like it's like you can win a trade war. Like you can win a trade war. What happens when you win a trade war is both countries are worse off than they would have been had you not had the trade war. But if you win, you're less worse off than the other country is. And that's what a trade war is. I mean it's also what a war is, in fact, in yeah. most cases. You know, in most cases it's like at the end of a war both countries are worse off. But if you win, you're less worse off. But you would have been better off just not to have the war in the vast majority yeah. of cases. Well, in your class, like, what 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 do you find is usually like the the, the most common misconceptions that people like when you know the first week or two and like you're unloading some of these ideas. What seems to be things that people are like they have those like ah oh, I never saw it that way. There's a lot of them. I mean, a big one is that thing about not winning and losing. The notion, the understanding, and it's just like math. Like it's funny. Like it's math, but it's just understanding that like 
like the math way to put it is not all gains are zero sum, which is just, I mean, it's inherent in the idea. This is like when you talk about those ideas, it's inherent in the idea of a zero sum game mm -hmm. that not all gains are zero sum. But once you, st but I guess the more complicated version of it is to understand that we are inclined to treat many games as if they are zero sum. And if the game is truly zero sum, if I'm genuinely in an actual, totally zero sum game with you, and if I'm just self-interested, then what I should be doing is trying to win and trying to make you lose. And I should probably be being secretive, and I should probably be being sneaky, and I should definitely be trying to be combative. Um, but the thing that we learned in the class was that in real life, incredibly few situations are actually zero-sum games. Like, basically almost no situations are zero-sum games, except actual games. Like, mm -hmm. playing poker is a zero-sum game. Mm -hmm. But, like, no... And, and again, if, if that seems Pollyannish, it's like, just remember, like, you can destroy value. If you can destroy value, it's not a zero-sum game, you know? Um, and as soon as you understand that games aren't zero-sum, then all of a sudden, all those strategies change. Mm -hmm. So if you're in a non-zero-sum game, what you should be doing is working to maximize value. And, uh, and, and, and the strategies that make you win are almost always strategies that reduce value. Mm -hmm. you know, because if I'm competing with you, I'm going to be destroying stuff and you're trying to you know. mm -hmm. So people get a lot out of that. People get a lot of the idea that there's a difference between trying to maximize my own value and trying to be the winner in a game against you. That's a really, that's a really big insight for people. Um, I think like just the general shift into making things more collaborative is huge. I think uh, lots of it, making that shift to underlying interest, it's really different. Part of what's fun, listening, like a huge thing is like how important it, how the degree to which it is in your, in your interest to listen to the other person in a negotiation, but it's also really hard to do, like that yeah. kind of. You have trick. You have tricks for listening better. Yeah, for sure. We have a lot of tricks. Well, tell me some tricks. Um. A lot of the tricks for this stuff are just about pre-commitment. So a lot of it is if you're in a situation you're going into, like, um, give it, especially in a, in a hard situation, like in a situation you know is going to be a big deal that you can prepare. And so part of what that means is like, um, a lot of it is giving it pre-thought and pre-committing. So taking some time and be like, what are some questions I might want to ask them? And like, write them down. And then ask those questions. Or well, what, what might I might know, might not know, or what are some what are some of things that I think that I know about this situation? But when I think about it, those are actually assumptions, and I'm not sure. And like, the more you can do that, I think for all this stuff, one really big trick is to like um, engage your like calm, non-aroused system to mind. Like, let that mind do as much of the work as possible, and don't rely on your like aroused in the moment system one mind to do all the work. So don't think like, oh, I'm going to go in and wing it, and it's going to be fine, because it's not. You're going to get stressed out, and you're going to do all the reactive stuff where you see zero-sum games where there aren't there, or you don't listen, or you're making advantage, you're gonna do all that stuff no matter how good you are. So the more that you can do that work when you're in your calm, rational state, and be like, okay, here's a list, maybe bring this list of questions with you. Like, get stuff out of your head and onto a piece of paper, like all that kind of stuff is really helpful. Um, often, uh, setting a goal for a conversation, like be like, pre-commit and say, you know what, this is a really big problem, we're not gonna try to figure out this whole conversation, this whole thing in one conversation. What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna take five minutes at the start just to understand the other person's point of view better. And for those five minutes, that's all I'm gonna do. Mm. Like even that, sometimes that solves the whole problem. Like just saying, you know what, before I fix the problem, because that's one of the things too, like we have this rush to fix the problem. Like our natural inclination is we wanna fix the problem now, mm. we wanna fix it ourselves. Mm. Um, so even just suspending the desire to fix the problem 
and to say, okay, you know what? In the calm, in the calm of reason, I understand this like six month long conflict with my coworker. We're not going to fix it in ten minutes. So maybe what I should do in our first conversation is just get a better idea of what they're coming from. Maybe that'd be helpful. So that, a lot of that, taking time before to just to do all the things that we sort of talk about. Taking time before to think about what you to really think about what your interests are. Taking time before to think about. Um, whether the relationship matters and whether it's a good idea to make it antagonistic mm-hmm. so that when you go and say, oh, wait a minute, that's not, you know, mm-hmm. what I'm doing now is I'm, I'm trying to win, you know, and it's not going to help me to try to win. One of the things I wanted to talk about was um, in the book you talk a lot about you a fascination with games in general, which I yeah. think is really interesting. Yeah. Uh, uh, you, um, you also have a... a um, a, uh, a background in um, like improv type stuff, right? Yeah. And I feel like that's had to inform a lot of this. And I'm wondering what, what you gained from that and what kind of games, uh, like there's, there's one game in particular I want you to talk about. Right. Uh, there's a language game where people will have to, um, I think it was something like they speak in gibberish. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, if you could describe that game and what the value of it is for you. Uh, yeah, oh man, I haven't done that in so long. This is where like the book was written quite a few years ago. And it makes me happy to think about the game. Uh, and a little sad, because I haven't done it in a while. But yeah, so the game, this is a game I used to do a lot when I with, in, with imp- when I taught improv classes. And so what you do is you have like, in a simple, I, mean, I guess the straightforward version of it is you have two people on stage, and they speak, they just speak gibberish. They go, you know. And, they, and, when you, and each of them has another player who's off stage who's assigned to translate for them. So someone comes in and says, you know, blah, 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 blah. And the person off says, 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 you know, I'd like to buy that car. The other person says, oh, let me show you around, sir. <laughs> um, and so you're just, so you're on stage and you're speaking. And the idea is when you speak, you speak with a lot of, you know, emotion and gestures and all this stuff. And the idea is that when you're off stage, you try to really match what the other person's saying. And uh, when the game goes really well, what happens is you can't remember who said what. So if you're the person speaking gibberish, you kind of feel like, you said those words that the other person said. And if you're the person translating, you sort of feel like the other person said them and you were just kind of there when it happened. Uh, And uh, that feeling's great. And it's a lovely feeling in improv in general, the sort of stuff in improv that I really like is that feeling where, and and also when you're speaking gibberish, you you feel like, you know, on the one hand, you're really contributing a lot because you're sort of saying, you know, you know, and you're gesturing and you've got all this emotion to it. So it's not like you're being passive, but at the same time, you're sort of surprised by what the actual specifics of the words are as they come out. So there's this real combination of having a lot of agency and having no agency. And and to me, I think in some very real way, that's sort of what you want to be doing in a negotiation too. You go in and there's stuff that really matters to you and that you want a lot and you're really trying to um, get your needs met and at the same time, you're willing to be very surprised and you're willing to absorb new information and you're willing to let the other person affect you. And so that that sort of combination of being in control and out of control is something that I think is really powerful and exciting in improv and also really powerful and exciting in, in, in just any sort of interaction with any person. It's sort of like a good conversation with someone. Like, it sort of feels like, oh, you kind of take this direction and you're kind of surprised and you, you find yourself somewhere new, somewhere new, but you're not just like on a theme park ride. You're not just sitting there. Yeah. You're doing stuff. Yeah. You're doing stuff and being surprised at the same time. And that's, that to me is kind of, that's sort of, I always think of that as like the improv feeling. Like that's always what I loved about improv is like getting like the improv feeling where you're kind of, you're sort of, 
you're driving the car, but it's taking you all these places you didn't know you were going. It's right? like an emergent property of the of, of the group. Yeah, yeah, and that to me was the stuff I'm really interested in improv. I would do more music stuff afterwards. We do like these large group improvisations where like these emergent things would happen. It's super fun. Well, what's the music thing? I think I vaguely remember. Oh, it. Um, the main, the the best emergent game that I did uh, with the group was we would do this game. Man, this is also a long time, and I miss this maybe even more. But we used to do this. We did this game where. Uh, it's kind of complicated, but nice. It's, it's, so you get it, you may play this game with maybe a dozen people. And what you do is you have everybody in the room, you just say, walk around and just make different noises. And just keep making different noises, keep making different noises. Uh, we call this music, this is music very loosely. But it's worth, I want to preface this by saying that when you're playing this game, you actually experience it as a powerful aesthetic experience. It doesn't just feel like, when you describe it, it just sounds like a game, but when you're doing it, it's actually very beautiful. So you walk around the game and just, when we just have to make different noises. And you say, okay, great. Now here's the task. Your task is, you've got a dozen people standing around and we're making different noises. Your task is you want to gradually, over say the next four minutes, get to the point where you're all making the same noise. But you want to do it, like you're not, don't signal to each other, don't like, like just, and the way to do it is maybe just listen to what you hear in the room and make your sound just a little bit more like everybody else's sound. And then a little bit more and a little bit more, just over the course of a few minutes until you're finally all making the same sound. And bit by bit, that happens. And so bit by bit, this sort of cacophony of different noises comes together to the point where it's this total unison of people just making one noise together. And if it goes well, you kind of don't know where that noise came from. Like, it's not like one person's noise won or that one person's noise, you know, you sort of get to that point. Now you're all making the same noise together. You do that for a while because it's really fucking fun. It's really intense and it's interesting. And it's because and you had to get there. And then the next instruction, you say, okay, now what I want you to do is start to, and this is actually surprisingly hard. This part's harder than you would think, which is you say, try to make your noise just a little tiny bit different from what you hear. So you're just starting to diverge from each other, a tiny bit. And it's actually kind of hard to do. It's surprisingly hard to do, but bit by bit, then you this sort of total unison starts to have just little bits of variation in it. And you say, great, get further and further, further. And then you finally say, okay, try to get to the point where you're making your noises as, as, as different as possible. So like, listen to what you hear in the room and just do the opposite of everything else you hear. Mm. So then you've got people this total chaos of different noise. Say, great, now, over the next five minutes, come back again to unison. People come back again, they come to a different unison. And we would play this piece, some place for like an hour and a half, you go back and forth between unison and divergence, unison and divergence, unison and divergence again and again. And um, different unisons every time, different kinds of things. Uh, but uh, but it, when you talk about like the emergent stuff, it's like, oh, the idea of like this group of a dozen people in cacophony somehow come to like this one sound that they're going to make which is going to be different every time and no one knows whose sound it was and maybe it was a sound that no one was making before and mm -hmm. ideally it's not it's not anything no one person is making that sound but you kind of do that um and it's an interesting feeling again because you're sort yeah. of in something and you're in something that's bigger than you and it's and the part the part that's hard to hard to get from the description of it is that when you're inside of it well, one thing i would often ask people to do is for a while just stop and just listen to it and then i think to an outsider it just sounds like a bunch of noise but if you're in it it's like the most beautiful thing in the yeah. world, you know. It's it's like, it sounds religious or spiritual. Yeah, it sounds yeah. it sounds like uh, you know, like one of those like the, you know, an ancient ceremony where, yeah. where we're all together making the sound. Yeah, you're part of something bigger than yourself and, and it has and it's not like other things and it's very rich and it's very complicated and, and there's like a, Yeah, and there's something about your connection to these other people and stuff like that. So that was a really good And how easy it is and that it's in, it was in you to do that. Yeah. Like you could have done this. And also like with all this stuff, it's also both easy and hard because you can do it with people who've never done it before and they can do it. And at the same time, sometimes I do it with a group who would, you know, you'd work together over weeks and weeks and they'd get better at it by whatever criteria of better like they'd be like oh we played that game you know the time we played like the third time we played was really interesting the fourth time i kind of felt it wasn't 
it was kind of boring and obvious what we came up with. But then we played again. I really liked what we did there. You know, mm. and so you develop these aesthetic criteria of this chaotic noise. You know, but they kind of be like, oh, that particular chaotic noise matched with <laughs> matched with the drone was really good, and that one was kind of a little boring. Or something, yeah. You know. And so we do. We did lots of games like that. Those were pretty fun. I dig this for so much. I don't know why, but I have has that sense of like there's a lesson in this, and I'm trying to like find it. Yeah. You know, because it feels. Um, there's something there about, um, I don't know, there's something about not, the fact that that's possible and that you can set it up and, and people can participate in it will happen. Yeah. And that it's in you. I don't know, there's something about it that feels illustrative of something that I can't put my finger on it. That's, I like that about it. That's kind of my hope. I mean, with those things, one of the things I really wanted was for them to be illustrative and you can't put your finger on it. Yeah. Like, I think that was when I was doing those things. And that feels very different from, maybe not, but it feels sort of different from the negotiation teaching where it sort of feels more like I'm trying to get people to a specific outcome. Um, although, the more I teach, the more they feel similar. Like, the more I teach the negotiation stuff, the more I'm like, oh, there's not one answer, you know? Yeah. Um, but I think part of what I liked about those exercises was that they felt rich and illustrative, but like hopefully they were illustrative in ways where it was kind of like, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like, huh, that's like a, a, ga a game that's of something. That's a feeling I haven't had before. Yeah, because I've, I've certainly gained something from this, but I'm gonna, yeah. I'm, I may have to pick it apart, and maybe my interpretation won't be this other person's interpretation. That was always certainly my hope. Yeah, I always felt like if the game was just like everybody sort of extracted the same moral from it as each other, I was kind of like, well, that doesn't seem like maybe the best game. Yeah, you know, and it almost feels like this happens in these, in these, in the negotiations that have what we would consider a. a a positive outcome that is the outcome where like I gained something from this I'm not sure why but it yeah. wasn't what I thought was going to happen and that's been I think a big evolution I think what I was talking before about like the negotiation class I think a big evolution for me as a teacher just now when I was saying like oh I'm trying to get them to an outcome is the longer I teach the more I'm like um, happy for people to learn whatever hmm. I think I think a thing I realized as a teacher which was really liberating for me as a teacher was the first few times I was teaching these negotiation classes and I was like, man, there are these concepts and I want people to get these concepts and if they didn't quite get the concept, I'd be disappointed. If they did get the concept, I'd be happy. And then I reflected back on my own experiences as a learner and when I think about the learning experiences I most enjoyed, a lot of them were like, oh, I was in this class and I had this really big epiphany and I really figured out this thing. But a lot of the time I think I figured out wasn't actually the thing that the teacher was saying. Mm -hmm. Like it was, the class made that possible. Mm -hmm. But it was something that I figured out that was like adjacent to what the teacher was saying, or maybe even almost irrelevant. And as a teacher, one thing that I increasingly try to do is remember that. Mm -hmm. That like, so the kind of teacher I want to be isn't a teacher where like every single student emerges, you know, and in the inside of their head is now a perfect replica of what the inside of my head was mm -hmm. like before the class. Mm -hmm. But at the end, it's like, oh, like if, you know, if there's like a dozen people in the class and like half of them have like, you know, these epiphanies that have nothing to do with what I was saying, I'm good. Like I'm a good, that's a good teacher. It's not, it's not my job to kind of just, you know, replicate my ideas in there. And it's helpful as a teacher. And in some ways it also feels more compatible with what I'm teaching too. Because part of what I'm trying to teach is the idea that like, you don't want, you know, your job isn't to be unilaterally controlling of every situation. So as a teacher, it's like, yeah, I'm here to you know, help you do what you got to figure out. Mm -hmm. It's one of the things, that, uh, and I'll, we'll come to an end here, but the, the, one of the things I like that you say at the beginning of Trampoline Home, it, 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 it always, I don't know, it makes my, it makes my stomach go, ee, is the, you talk about the person is, up here is going to share something with you and they're not going to lose anything. They're, yeah. they're still going to have the knowledge. <laughs> But then you're going to have the knowledge. Yeah, yeah. But then, but we're all going to have the knowledge, and then yeah. we will, and we're sharing that. We are going to have a new 
you know, we're going to be connected in some way in this room, and that's what's going to happen three times in a row, yeah. and no one's losing anything. We're all gaining something, you know. Yeah. And I, every time you say it, I'm like, yeah, I, I, you're you're basically doing that thing again, where you're you're explicitly stating something that is should be obvious, yeah, yeah. But when you say it out loud, I have that feeling like. Fuck yeah, that's great. That is, you know, like that, that is that is what happens here. Why don't we do that more? It's so good, right? And um, uh, I almost feel like that's all, kind of what happens in these good negotiations is that something that should have been obvious becomes so. And um, and the only way, the reason it wasn't coming out was because of assumptions or yeah. or refusal to ask questions yeah, or right. and um, the fact that it, you have to almost build a is it, like science should have been obvious. So many things that science has has given us should have been obvious, but you had to build a framework to get past your you know preconceived notions and or to di- disconfirm instead of confirm. And it's almost like that's the biggest trick. The biggest like there's so much value has come from seeking a path of disconfirmation instead of confirmation, and right. not necessarily even seeking disconfirmation. Just don't seek confirmation. Yeah, yeah. And see what comes. Just up. whenever that small shift is, yeah, like there's yeah. some small shift, and so so the small shift might be seek disconfirmation instead of confirmation, or that small shift might be um, think about what the other person wants. Yeah. You know, like not out of generosity. You know, like, like <laughs> right, to right. solve the problem, yeah. you should think about what the other person wants. Yeah. Yeah. To solve the problem, you should listen. To solve the problem, you should avoid antagonism. Like there's small. Yeah. Um, that are, or yeah, the the pie is not fixed. It is this is not a zero sum game. The amount of value in this negotiation isn't don't you know, isn't stable. So don't act as if it is. Yeah, yeah they're very small ideas. But, uh, yeah, they're small ideas. Like but they're like little keys that open this door. So one thing one thing to name like one thing I want to say in all this stuff is like all of these things like all these strategies and stuff for negotiation and for doing these things. One thing that's really important to know is that they are just that they're hard. Mm. Like that they're so a lot of this is about like going against what your natural instincts are. And I think that's just something to name. So like I just feel bad like being on this podcast and being like, Oh, you know what you should do is you should listen and you should talk about underlying interests and then someone's gonna come away and feel like, Oh man, I should do that and then when they try to do it, they find out that they can't. That's normal. <laughs> like the normal state of affairs is to not be able to do this. And if all that you know is no like, huh, there's this behavior that would be advantageous to me, but I often don't do it, that's great. You're really doing awesome, you know? <laughs> like, and, and like if 95% of the time you still don't do it, you're still doing awesome. Yeah. Like those 5% of the time you do do it, that's great. And like figuring out how to do it more often, that's like a life's work. Like it's not something you get right away. Uh, the I had a question that I forgot to to bounce off of it goes way back in the conversation but when you were um you were talking about in a negotiation when you were asking people uh why is that important to you yeah. i'm wondering um does that sometimes do they sometimes realize they haven't asked that question themselves yeah very often people have and they surprise themselves yeah. with the elaboration of it i mean like yeah and those kinds of questions like like it really depends on the context but in a lot of contexts like yeah people have it and you have, and you also can ask yourself that question mm-hmm. too that like very often um I think in like coaching, in like the work of coaching, that very often like um, that's just what you're coaching is just <laughs> just that. <laughs> Someone says I want it, I want this, and you say, oh great, why do you want that? And they say, oh well, for this reason. And you say, great, well, why? Is that? And they talk for like two minutes. They say, great, why is that important to you? And then they talk for two minutes. And say, oh oh, I see, I see. So tell me more about why that's really important to you. And they tell me, and then like you just do that like ten times, and now you've had like a forty-five minute coaching <laughs> session. The person's had like a hundred, you know, and they think you're a genius. They have a hundred yeah. huge insights, and you're a genius. And you just ask them. It's yeah, a really good question. Here's one. You want one more? You want more? One more little thing? I do. I don't know if you want this or not, but here's one thing. The one one story that I resisted telling is there's this story that's like a negotiation story. It's like a three minute story Perfect. that illustrates some concepts. Look at that. 
is a classic story. Uh, okay, so this story, this is like, um, this is, for illustrating the negotiation concepts, this is like a, a classic, classic, classic story that every negotiation teacher tells. And now I'm going to tell it. And the story is this. It's the story of the orange. And the way the story of the orange goes, and it's, and it's a story that illustrates um, a bunch of things, but I guess especially positions and interests. And the story of the orange is, there's two little kids, I think they're girls and sisters in the original story, and that's, that's what they'll be here. These two little girls, and they're in the kitchen, there's one orange, and they're fighting over the orange. Dad comes in, sees them fighting over the orange. Each of them gives all these reasons why she wants the orange and should deserve the orange. Father doesn't find any of the reasons terribly compelling. So he does the fairest thing he can think to do, which is he takes the orange, he cuts it in half. He gives half the orange to each sister, and off they go. The next day, he comes up to the first sister, and he says, uh, how did it go? And the sister says, uh, you know, I see how what you did was fair. Uh, I wanted the orange because I was making, I wanted to make juice. And because I only had half the orange, I could only make half as much juice as I wanted. But, you know, I see it was fair. It was okay. He goes up to the second sister, and he says, how did it go? And the sister says, oh, I see how what you did was fair. Uh, I wanted the orange because I was uh, baking a cake, and the cake called for the rind, for the peel of the orange. Because I only had half the orange, I could only make half the cake I wanted to make, but I see how what you did was fair. So this is a positions and interest story, right? So that, that's the sort of when you, it's like, oh, you feel this sadness in your heart, right? That it sort of feels like, oh, you, you really overlook this opportunity to create more value. And it illustrates all those ideas. So the idea is that in terms of, um, on the surface, it looks like the sisters have these positions that are opposed to each other. One says, I want the orange. The other is, I would like the orange. Those positions are diametrically opposed to each other. Um, and then you could sort of imagine them having this battle where maybe one's going to take 75% or 25%. And that's that sort of zero-sum kind of haggling approach to negotiation, um, where you sort of say, well, maybe I'll get a little bit more orange, a little bit less. But once you talk about, once you ask them that magic question that we talked about before, why does this matter to you? The second you talk about that, the second they say, oh, we can divide the, here's what we want, it becomes instantly obvious that there's a better solution. Um, and when you do that better solution, what you do is you create, you basically double the amount of value, right? And that, that when you cut up the orange, what you're basically doing is you're saying each sister gets one half of a unit of value, kind of. Mm -hmm. But if you divide up the orange differently and let one half the peel and one half the pulp, suddenly you've got two units of value. One gets the whole glass of juice, the other gets the whole cake. So that idea is that kind of by, if you can switch that conversation from surface level positions to underlying interests, talk about why it matters to you, you can invent these options that it's really important to say weren't obvious before. Mm -hmm. So very often at the beginning of the story, you'd be like, well, why, why should I talk to her? Why would we have a conversation? She wants the orange, I want the orange. That's all there is to it. Why would we have a conversation? But just this one simple question of why do you want it, uh, unlocks it. And the claim, I guess, that I make is that lots and lots of situations are like that. And that's a claim that I think people just have to test in their own lives, but I think it's, my experience is that it's really true. That's so good. Yeah. It's so powerful. Plug and name the different things no, yeah, go for it. Yeah, that are going down here. So the class, uh, the class that I teach, uh, the main, the main class that I teach, uh, I teach a class called How to Talk to People About Things. That's the class. And I teach it in a bunch of... What do you, what do you teach that class? I teach it in a bunch of different ways. So I teach it in... The, the main way, the sort of at the core of it, is I teach a class in Toronto. And I teach that class um, to the general public. And there's, I think, actually a series coming up when this podcast goes out. So if people are in Toronto and they want to take the class, they can go to my website and they can sign up. There's like a couple of spots left. It sells out fast, but there's still a couple of spots left. Um... So I teach that class there. It's a six-week class. It is, and that's like at the center of my work, and I love it. And then the other stuff I do is I also teach this class um, within organizations and stuff like that. So I help organizations get better at communicating, and um, I don't know. That's other work that I do. So people out there who have organizations, they want to get better at communicating. Talk to me too. Mm -hmm. um, and that's uh, 
Oh, and the other one, I don't know if this is too pluggy, but the other thing that I would just mention is that um, I'm also teaching, uh, for the first time, teaching a version of this class at the Ivy Business School. Uh, so I'll be working, and that's like a special version of the class for like uh, business leaders, and that's going to happen in April. So if people want to, people want to do that, they can they can do that. If people want to know more about what I'm doing, mm -hmm. um, that's stuff for people to know. I mean, I can just even think in terms of uh, arguments or, or or dysfunctional moments in family or whatever, where if somebody had just said like. Here's why I'm doing it. You know, it's the whole like it's very common in Southern culture. Like, don't, like, don't ask me. Just do it. You know, right, like, right. like, like respect. This is about respect. You yeah. know, and but if you would just tell me why you're asking me to do the thing, and that kind of ties in a little bit with that honor. I, I know you've talked about like the sort of evolution of that honor culture. It they feel not disconnected. Like honor culture feels like it's kind of feels like it's a zero sum culture. Yeah, it really is. Like that that like all of those kinds of things about like the sort of economic basis of the honor culture is like oh that's a zero-sum culture and in a zero-sum culture so a lot of these all these principles like they they all assume that you're sort of in a non-zero-sum environment if you're if you're like in like mad max world where like there's just like not enough food for everybody and the only way to get food is steal from other people and kill them like you should not be applying these principles you know <laughs> like you should be applying different principles yeah. we're not in mad max world you know yeah, and so yeah. maybe southern maybe that sort of southern honor culture comes from something yeah, yeah that cultural lag of that is still there and it gets very apparent it's very there in parenting or, or even in relationships where like you know like why are you like i ask i just ask for it is there some reason why you're challenging me on this and and the challenge itself becomes the issue and now you're not even if you just like say why you want to do it it's a lot easier you know uh so i don't know this is something big about it like like we were saying earlier i feel like it's, it'll be fun when i sit down and like look for the through lines because it just feels big like the why feels like a big deal yeah it feels like a cheat code for um you know it's Take, you know, being mindless about um, um, just proceeding from uh, instinct or proceeding from gut, yeah. and then and then bypassing that with a cheat code is powerful. I like the idea of why is a cheat code, and it's a nice cheat code because it also unlocks. It's funny, like that one word. It's actually like there's multiple principles that are principles that I teach that all come out of that one word. Because one question, one thing that why does is it gets at interests, so that's a part of it. But the other thing that why does is it's also um, listening. Like, the second you ask someone why, what you're doing is you're now listening, mm -hmm. you know, which is part of it, too. And then that leads to, like, empathy, which is part of it. Like, so all mm -hmm. that stuff. So that, that one idea of just, like, ask why kind of does a bunch of things. And they they feel heard. They feel bad. Yeah. They feel like they're not... Yeah. Some, some of the fight's taken out of them because yeah. they are... They're now getting what they actually wanted in the first place, was to be heard, to be validated. Yeah, and it exhibits your interest in them and it lets them be heard, which is also super important and all this stuff. Yeah. And plus it makes you, I mean, the biggest deal is like, you learn something yeah. and, um, I mean, even if you've got a heart, even if you're hard headed about it and you think that you're not there to learn something, you will, you will learn something now. And what it's going to add to what you know about the thing and you can't proceed from your assumptions anymore. I mean, you can, your assumptions are still there, but you have new information. So you're going to have a different assumptions on top of it now. Yeah. No, and that's what's wild. Like, I think one of the things that you're kind of naming is like, just the idea that like, you're going to learn something, like how much we in so many situations like try to protect ourselves from learning something mm. and how weird that is and mm -hmm. how not conducive it is to better problem solving mm -hmm. like how much it hinders problem solving you know it's that thing that like is very very ancillary but like you know I have that like um, I always tell people like always go to the party like always go like, right. like I don't like oh this is going to be a thing I'm like just go always go you can always leave right. and if you just go it's like it always ends up being like I'm really glad I went 
because a thing happened that you couldn't like that you didn't know was going to happen and for some reason right. we get stuck we feel like we know exactly what it's going to be like to go to this thing yeah, yeah. and what exactly the conversations are going to be and uh um uh, they, uh, richard wiseman talks about that mindset is like the difference between lucky and unlucky is that lucky people go to the party with right. no expectation of what they're going to get out of it right and then they get something out of it that they could never have predicted and they're like people are like man that guy's always that guy's so lucky I mean, <laughs> luck always seems to shine on him he's like well it's just a behavior routine like unlucky people don't go right. or if they do go they go with one intention in mind if they don't get that if they huh. don't get it right. they don't look for anything else right. he said that it was like um, it's like looking for a certain job in the newspaper and then if it's not there you, you throw the newspaper it. away right. or um, you go to the party because you want to meet somebody meet a romantic partner and you go there and there's no that's not happening you're like i shouldn't have went yeah. but if you go there with no intention exactly set or no goal and you, you end up meeting you know you, you join a paintball club because it's like hey you ever be you ever, you ever do paintball you know and like and that might lead to who knows what else and it's just the difference between he taught it he talks about it as like a relate a healthy relationship with chaos versus trying right. to control what's going to happen which is impossible right and you're you're if you seek this impossible thing you you never get it yeah. versus the other person who's not seeking at all it's very it's funny how much those same themes just come up again and again because yeah, yeah. i think of control is so much like a part of this stuff here it it's is. like oh that what that like in this and that like in a lot of negotiation stuff it's like oh paradox you know somewhat counterintuitively what gives you bad results is trying too hard to control mm -hmm. you know, which is also true in improv like what yeah. gives you back control. it all comes back to naive realism honestly it all comes back to that same thing it's like i know how the world works my assumptions are yeah. what's going to happen yeah. my model is set and has a good foundation and i'm not going to mess with it right and if you do that that rules out learning it rules out surprise it rules out all of those it rules out collaboration it rules out all of those things yeah. basically it just is it's you do get security in <laughs> it's such a dark security <laughs> so yes you do get security nothing everything's just going to be crappy like this <laughs> you get your <laughs> <laughs> your hard-fought way of seeing the world stays secure yeah, yeah. and also that's all you get for the rest of your life <laughs> <laughs> yeah no exactly that's a, that's something that comes up a lot in the class and people talk one of the things we talk about in the class is like the idea of difficult like difficult conversations so a big part of the reason people take the class is like there's something that's like hard to talk about and you want to have that conversation or whatever and one of the things that i think holds people back from having them is like it's like risk versus security and it's like you know it's like oh like if you having the conversation is risky but people People will value security. I'm sure this is true in all sorts. People will value security so much, like completely irrationally. Like you're like, oh, you know, there's a situation that work that's like really hard, and you're like, oh, if you talk about it, it'll be risky. Whereas if you don't talk about it, you know what'll happen, which is that your job will be terrible every day for mm -hmm. the rest of your life, mm -hmm. and you're willing to do that. You're like, oh, yeah. I'll choose option B, Always. just because like we're so risk averse that like the very very small near term risk of like a slightly difficult conversation like outweighs the like, you know just like putting up with something terrible forever yeah and why do people do that yeah people really putting up with something terrible forever yeah. is a pretty common theme of human <laughs> of human beings <laughs> and on that <laughs> note <laughs> <laughs> thank you so good so good that is it for this episode of the You're Not So Smart podcast. Let me plug some things for Misha right away. 
You can find all of this stuff at MishaGloberman.com. That's G-L-O-U-B-E-R-M-A-N. There you can find information about his book, The Chairs Are Where the People Go, co-authored by Sheila Hetty. There you can sign up for his courses, whether you are an individual or an organization. There you can find out about Trampoline Hall, which also has a podcast you can find on iTunes and other places where podcasts are found. You can find links to all these things at YouAreNotSoSmart.com, where you can also find previous episodes. You can also find those previous episodes in iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and anywhere else they put podcasts. You can follow me at David McCraney on Twitter. You can follow the podcast at NotSmartBlog. It's also on Facebook slash YouAreNotSoSmart. And if you'd like to support the show, you can do that at Patreon, patreon.com slash YouAreNotSoSmart. Pitching in at any level gets you the show ad-free, but at the higher levels, you get t-shirts, signed books, posters, and all sorts of cool stuff. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. The interstitial music is by Banjo Apocalypse and Incompetech. New shows coming up soon about nature versus nurture, about hormones, about the uh, relationship between humans and technology and fake news and so much more. All that coming in the new year. And as I've been promising for a long time, I've almost finished a new series on logical fallacies. That's all coming up in 2019. See you then. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.